All right, thank you all for joining us tonight. Let's uh, go ahead and start with a prayer. In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here tonight. We ask that you send down your Spirit upon us so that we may come to know you, love you, and serve you all the days of our life. We thank you especially for the gift of your Son, our Lord, in which he gave his life for us and espoused us in his bride, the church. And may all we do bring you glory, as we say, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. Okay, so tonight's topic, we're going to talk about uh, the church, the study of the church, um, and why we have a church, and basic, the outlines for tonight are in front of you, Um, did anyone not get a copy? I think Blake's got some. When you think of the word church, what do you think of? building a building for what yeah for religious practice for God what else is the church sanctuary good the people yeah if this church blew away tomorrow would the church still exist yes okay if I was martyred tomorrow by Father Worth, <laughs> would the church still exist without your pastor? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, so we see time and time again the church has gone through many trials, adversities throughout the history of uh, the world. And so I want to start tonight, particularly, and show you a little bit of. Whoop, whoop. You don't ever seen this uh, commercial? This was. Uh, 2008, a long time ago, this was at the uh, Super Bowl that was released. And the question is, what has the church ever given to the world? Or what has the church ever given to humanity? And so that's kind of a question I want you to reflect upon um, as we go throughout tonight. What has the church actually done for the world or humanity? And more specifically, your homework assignment is going to be, what has the church done and meant for me? So let's see this little video. Our family is made up of every race. We are young and old, rich and poor, men and women, sinners and saints. Our family has spanned the centuries and the globe. With God's grace, we started hospitals to care for the sick. We established orphanages and helped the poor. We are the largest charitable organization on the planet, bringing relief and comfort to those in need. We educate more children than any other scholarly or religious institution. We developed the scientific method and laws of evidence. We founded the college system. We defend the dignity of all human life and uphold marriage and family. Cities were named after our revered saints who navigated the sacred path before us. Guided by the Holy Spirit, we compiled the Bible. We are transformed by sacred scripture and sacred tradition, which have consistently guided us for 2,000 years. We are the Catholic Church. With over 1 million in our family, sharing the sacraments and fullness of the Christian faith. For centuries, we've prayed for you and our world, every hour of every day, whenever we celebrate the Mass. Jesus himself. 
foundation for our faith. And he said to Peter, the first pope, you are rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. For over 2,000 years, we've had an unbroken line of shepherds guiding the Catholic Church with love and truth in a confused and hurting world. And in this world filled with chaos, hardship, and pain, it's comforting to know that some things remain consistent, true, and strong, our Catholic faith, and the eternal love that God has for all creation. If you've been away from the Catholic Church, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. Ours is one family, united in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We are Catholic. Welcome home. Um, who learned something from that? Uh, I just didn't know that it was like the largest like educating body, I guess, if that makes sense. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. Yeah, the, the modern school system, or even the ancient school system, if you lived in ancient Rome or Greece in, say, the year 250, how were you educated? Yeah, exactly, Jack. Unless you were wealthy, you would have a private tutor. And so only the real wealthy were educated. And it really wasn't until the medieval period and the monks and the establishment of the monasteries said, hey, actually, everyone, because everyone has a dignity, and we'll talk about this um, when we get into the morality, but everyone has an intellect and a will, and so everyone has a potential to learn. And so um, it became more of a universal education system, even before the state set up their education system. What else did anyone learn? I didn't realize um, the scientific method. Like, that was kind of surprising for me. Yeah. Did you guys, did you guys learn that last, last week, too? Uh, I know you were going, so like, yeah, the scientific method. You know, Gregor Mendel, um, the scholastics, um, Copernicus. I mean, these guys were all um, Catholic monks. Um, what about hospitals? There's a lot of them for science. Yeah. <laughs> and that's because the, the modern hospital system, too, was developed by, by Catholics, you know? Um, anything else? And it said colleges? Yeah. Universities. Yep. So, yeah, the, the university system, um, it was kind of like a rival. So basically what it was is, you, you know, you, you started teaching the kids when they were young, and most of them graduated, you know, left at age 14, and they went off to their trades, whether you were a blacksmith with your dad. But they would see, they would recognize that there were certain students that were very gifted, and they're like, hey, we want to actually educate you further. And so um, the university systems, like um, in Padua, had the, the f really the, the first medical school. And then you had um, other, other places like Paris, um, where studied canon law, you know, the first law school. Um, and so they were basically started because they needed people to go out into society to actually help form a just society. And so... Um, we asked the question at the beginning, what is the church? Um, 
in Scripture, there's a lot of different analogies used for, for the church. Okay, and you probably have heard of some of these. The assembly of God. Okay, the body of Christ. The temple of the Holy Spirit. And the bride of Christ. Which one of these analogies do you think resonates best with you? Who, who called the church the body of Christ? St. Paul. Paul, yep. The word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, okay, which literally is translated as assembly, okay? And so those who study um, church, it's called ecclesiology, the study of the church. Um, Father, can you, see, can you read that? Yep. A community of faith, hope, and charity as a visible organization through which Christ communicates truth and grace to all men, a society structured with hierarchical organs and a mystical body of Christ. Lumen Gentium, paragraph 8. Okay, so the church, thank you, the church is both concrete and spiritual. Um, is it easy to see spiritual things? No, you can't, right? Um, Concrete things. Is it easy to see the concrete? Oftentimes people, when they think of the Catholic Church, they think of men, old men, dressed in funny clothing, right? But the church has these visible reminders of the spiritual indwelling. And why is that? Why don't we just sit in a room like this with no images and just become spiritual? If you heard people say that, I'm spiritual but not religious. Okay. Well, that's what the Buddhists believe. I mean, that's kind of what Muslims believe in a way, too. As Catholics, we understand that there's a tangible reality of our faith. We call that the sacraments. We'll talk about sacraments later. But the tangible reality of our faith all rests in the person of Jesus Christ. Was Jesus spiritual or physical? Or both? Yes. Yeah. So Jesus was God in heaven, so he was a spiritual being who came to dwell with us. His incarnation, all heavens opened up. And so we can have physical realities that have the infusion of a divine grace or the spiritual realities. Okay? So the church is both concrete and spiritual. Uh, the four marks of the church. The church is one. Why is the church one? Because God is one. Okay? And church, the church is united to Christ. The greatest analogy that Jesus used for the church is the bride. He talks about the marriage, uh, or uh, heaven is a marriage banquet. That's the greatest analogy he used for heaven. The church is heaven here on earth. And so we are united as one. Okay. The church is holy. Is that because Father Dewar is a saint? Well, maybe. Not yet. Not yet. The church is holy because Christ is holy. And if the church and Christ are united as one in the one spouse, we are holy. And it's not because of anything that we have done, but it's because of what he has done. And he gives us the sacrament which makes the church holy. What do you think the word Catholic literally means? 
Yeah. The church is Catholic, universal. This was first used by Ignatius of Antioch in the year 102. He's writing to the early church. And he says, okay, you want to know where the true church is? It's the universal church. Even though you might have the book of Matthew in this community, this community over here might have the book of Luke. They didn't have the Bible yet, but there was a universal. And what made them universal is you can go to any community in the early church and they practice the same worship. They believe the same things. Um, the church is apostolic. We're going to talk about this probably the most tonight. The church is built upon the apostles. And how many of them are there? Twelve. Okay. And we get these four marks of the church from the Nicene Creed. Can anyone take a stab when the Nicene Creed was? Nicene and Constantinople Creed. What year was the Council of Nicaea? Put you on the spot, Lee. 325. Okay, good. 381. Whoa. Did you study church history too? We had a professor in the seminary who was quite large. He says, gentlemen, you're going to remember the date of the first council. It's my weight, 325. <laughs> <laughs> it really is the four marks of the church which tells you where to find the true church. If any of these four things are missing, because this is what the early church professed, if there's a church that doesn't actually go back to the apostles, it's not the true church. There's parts of it that are true, but it doesn't have the fullness. Okay. If there's a church that maybe is only um, here in Lincoln, like Bob's Baptist Street on Bob's Baptist Church on B Street, well, if that church is not found in, say, Sri Lanka, it's not the universal church. You can go to a Catholic Mass anywhere in the world. It's the same. It's universal. This might be kind of hard to see, but for those of you who kind of want to see um, the church as it has played out in the history of time. So Jesus came, died for us around the year 33 AD. And all these different names down here were different people who broke away from the church. They started their own. They were also known as, well, in the early church, heretics. So the most common one was Arius. Arius did not believe that Jesus was fully God. Okay? And so because Arius became so popular and people started following him, they had to call the first council. So those little um, Roman numerals on the bottom are the different councils. Okay? And the church keeps on growing, but then it's split right here, um, and then split again, finally, right here, with the Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, split in 1054. Okay, the Greek Orthodox have valid sacraments. They have bishops. They have priests. They have the Eucharist. You can go to confession. They believe everything that the Catholic Church holds and believes, except for the unity of the one church under one leader, the Pope. Okay? And we can get more into the, the great schism of 1054. It became more of a political thing than a religious thing. It was more of a cultural thing. Eastern, they spoke what language? Greek. The Western, they spoke Latin. So it was more of a cultural divide and a political divide than it really was a religious divide. 
But there were certain times, like the Council of Lyon, that came back into communion with the church for a little bit at the time, and then also the Council of Florence in the 1400s. Okay? And then with the Orthodox, they have eventually all these main persons who broke away from the church. Martin Luther, so you have the Lutherans. John Knox, the Presbyterians. John Wesley, the Methodists, and so forth. Stop me if you have any questions, otherwise I'll keep on moving on. Do they believe in like the Presbyterians? Uh-huh. Do they accept the, Pres the uh, Protestant Bible? Oh, uh, yeah. And, and the basic tenets are still there, you know, and a lot of the mainstream Protestants will still profess the Nicene Creed. Um, so there are some that don't. Um, I think the, the farther and farther you go along, you start getting a little bit more, like who's that, Joel Olstein, considered himself a Christian. But he, you go to Joel Olstein's service, and what he believes is very different than, say, a Missouri Synod Luther. You could go to a Missouri Synod Lutheran service, and it looks a lot more like a Catholic or the Anglican Mass than the Orthodox Divine Liturgy does, even though the Divine Liturgy is more theologically in line with us because they have valid sacraments. The reason why Luther's service looks so much like the Catholic Church, well, he was a Catholic priest. Okay? The Church of England broke away. Most of the people in England, if you ever want a good book, Hilaire Belloc, the English... We call it the English accent. Most people in England didn't even know that they broke away from the Catholic Church. You know, Henry VIII wanted an annulment. The church says, nope, you're validly married. Okay, I'm going to start my own church, basically, in a nutshell. And so he bribed some bishops that were corrupt to go with him, and they broke away. And the Mass was still the same. The only thing is they didn't pray for the Pope at Mass. People didn't notice it. Okay? So most of the time, people thought that they were Catholic. Okay. Here's a question. Why would I join the Catholic Church since it's full of sinners? Anyone ever proposed that question to you? What church is it? <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, what church isn't? Um, anyone here familiar with the Russian author Alexander Shulzhenitsyn? Is that how you pronounce his name? Solzhenitsyn. Yeah, Solzhenitsyn. Yeah. What's that? Gulag Akapelov. Yeah, yeah, so you're familiar with him. Um, he was a communist, and in his um, communist days, he was on the Western Front fighting against the Germans, and he saw the atrocities of war, and especially what the communists were doing. And so he eventually spoke out against the Russians, and he was put into a gulag in Siberia or wherever it was. Um, and in there, he had a conversion. He met an Orthodox priest, and he became a Christian. And when he was in there, they would, they would have these talks and these debates about the meaning of life and about Christianity and so forth. And they asked him this question. They said, what are we going to do when we get out of here? Are, do we need to form a new form of government or a new society? or a new religion. And if we could just take all the bad people and put them over here, and all the good people, we'll put them over here. Wouldn't that be a great utopia? And his famous, his famous words were, 
Gentlemen, it can't be that easy. Because the line between good and bad runs down the center of every man's heart. Right? Who here is a sinner? Yeah. We're all, we're all sinners. We were, we were all broken. Okay? So the church's holiness does not depend on the holiness of its members, but rather the holiness of God. And if you join the perfect church, if you found it, it would not be perfect anymore. It's Karen's name, right? <laughs> because we're not perfect. Uh, the church is perfect because of Christ, but it's imperfect because of its members. Perfection is only found in heaven. That's the beautiful thing. We believe in the church triumphant. So we celebrated the church triumphant just recently. What day was that? November 1st. We celebrate all the saints in heaven. So the church is in heaven. The church suffering, those in purgatory. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. And then the church militants, meaning that we are fighting for our eternal life. We are fighting for Christ. So the church is made up of us sinners because that's the only material that God had to build. (laughs) If he wanted to, he could have just had the angels come down and build a church and we would just kind of like revere them and but he came to be one with us not he didn't Jesus didn't become an angel he became one with us St. Paul says he became like us in all things except sin you remember this story in Matthew 13 so there's the weed anyone here grew up on a farm okay so it's like a wheat farm. You know, see, you know, wheat is kind of in clumps. It's not like corn roots, right? And if you pull out a weed, what's going to happen? You're going to uproot the wheat. And so Jesus uses this analogy because they would have known this. He says, leave the sinners with the righteous people. Because at end of time, at the harvest, or at the end of our lives, we'll let God separate the weeds from the wheat the sheep from the goat, okay? Okay. So why do we have a hierarchy? Anyone here work in corporate America? Okay. Anyone here been in the military? (laughs) Why do you have hierarchies in the military or in corporate America? It's because of organization, you know? If, this is, if we are a church militant, we need generals, but we also need frontline soldiers. Okay. In Matthew 9, Jesus is sad because they are like people without, they're like sheep without shepherds. Um, you ever seen a sheep without a shepherd? Are sheep smart or dumb? Yeah, they're dumb. Okay. He calls us dumb, basically. <laughs> and we are. May I cope, Lord. Now, wait a second. I thought that the prophecies of the Old Testament said that there's going to be one shepherd, and he will gather his sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So Jesus is the good shepherd. So why is he weeping in Matthew chapter 9? He's weeping because they don't have shepherds. He's, he's actually referring to the Jewish leaders. They're not actually shepherding the people. He's weeping for them. 
So he's come on the scene. So isn't he the good shepherd? You know, we studied the Bible here a few weeks ago. But the Bible actually does not, when it was written, did not divide up the chapters. That's a later edition. That's what we did. So you have to kind of read the whole thing in context. And so Matthew 9 and Matthew 10 go together. So in this, right after he weeps over them, he calls 12 apostles. And he gives them authority to preach, to heal, and to forgive sins. The word that actually, he doesn't just call them. The word is actually he makes them. Remember the, the prophecy or the image in the Old Testament of the, the potter and the, the clay? So God is making his church from this clay, just as he made Adam in, from the dust of the earth. And so he's starting to shape and form his church by calling these 12 apostles. And what's the symbolism of 12? Yeah, the 12 tribes of Israel. Behold, I make all things new. Okay. So the apostles were his closest collaborators and witness to whom he gave a mission. He sent them out to preach. Okay. And so these were the 12 men who would form the foundation of Christ's church and who were going to be instituted as priests at the Last Supper. We'll talk about that um, here in a couple of months. And so Jesus actually tells them in Luke 10, whoever listens to you, the apostles, listens to me. And whoever rejects you, rejects me. Okay? It's like ambassadors. What's an ambassador to do? Represent. Yeah. The ambassador represents. Is the ambassador a king or a president? No. But he, he speaks on behalf of the king or behalf of a president. So everything that he says are words entrusted to him to give to the nation that he's going to go visit. Okay. G.K. Chesterton, the great British um, author, uh, he, he's got this, this great quote, and I'll probably do it to disservice, but he said, you know, the interesting thing about Christians who are true ambassadors of Jesus is that they don't question what the message is. They just deliver it. And they've been delivering it now for over 2,000 years. Okay, so our hierarchy of in the church, there are three ranks in the church. Okay? The word bishop in the Greek is episkopoi. It literally means someone who oversees. So he oversees a general area. So right now our bishop is Bishop Conley. And at Mass we refer to him as their first name, Bishop James. James our bishop, it says. And so he oversees a particular area called the diocese. And that diocese that Bishop Conley oversees is everything south of the Platte River in Nebraska. Okay. And they are the ministers, the ordinary minister of confirmation and of holy orders, priesthood. So I cannot make another priest, only a bishop can. The second order of the hierarchy is the presbyters, where you get the word Presbyterian from, okay? The presbyters 
This word is found in Luke chapter 10 and also James 5. And James 5 says, and we'll talk about this sacrament, is anyone among you sick? Let them send the priests to the church. The priests will pray over them and then anoint them. And then if the prayer of faith will save the sick person. And then if they've committed any sins, their sins will be forgiven. Okay. As a priest, I only can act with the authority of the bishop. The bishop can send me a letter tomorrow and say, Father Clark, um, you are no longer able to celebrate Mass. Okay. You know, so I can only function as a priest because of the authority given to me by the bishop. And so the priest acts in the person of Christ or alter Christus, another Christ in the world. And then a deacon, the word diakonos means one who serves. You guys remember the story in the early church, Acts? So in the early church, you got people who are the Jewish converts, and then you have the Hellenists. The Hellenists are Jewish converts too, but they are Greek-speaking Jews. And the apostles were given all their time to the people that spoke the same level. They were only focusing on the people who were speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. And so they started to complain because they were some widows that were Hellenists, and they weren't being taken care of. And the guys say, well, let's get together and let's choose seven reputable men that we can ordain to help go and serve those widows um, and those people who cannot come um, to our Sunday Mass. Okay. Now, there's a difference between uh, a transitional deacon and a permanent deacon. When I was ordained a priest, I had to be ordained a deacon first. So I was transitioning so it's usually a period of six months to a year. You're ordained a deacon, and the deacon preaches and does baptisms and then goes to bring communion to those who are sick. So you start as a deacon, and then you become a priest, and those who have the cross that they have to carry are named bishop. Okay. <laughs> Which is why I never appreciate the joke. What's that? The Father Dewar and Father Worth praying to be a bishop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you continue that, please. <laughs> Any questions on the hierarchy? How do you go from priest to bishop? That's a great question. It's um, <clears throat> So in every diocese, um, they have a list of three men who are very well educated or have some pastoral experience and they've done a lot of good work, they usually have a name of three men who that the bishop, their, their local bishop thinks that has the qualities to be a bishop someday. Those three names go to um, the nuncio. The nuncio is the ambassador from Rome to the United States. And he's got, um, he's in Washington, D.C. because he's an ambassador. And he collects names from all over the diocese in the country and then say, like, for instance, Fargo comes open here four or five years ago. They need a new bishop. Well, they're probably not going to send a guy from California to Fargo, you know, not just because of the climate, but also because of just the connection with people. So um, that nuncio looks at guys, well, they're probably going to choose a guy from the Midwest, and then they send a list of who they think, and it goes to Rome. And then there's an office of bishops in Rome, 
they select who they think is the best candidate, and then it goes to the Pope. And then the Pope agrees, this is who we're gonna choose. He signs off. They call this priest up and says, hey, the Holy Father has chosen to select you to be the next Bishop of Fargo. Do you accept? Has anyone said no? Oh yeah, really? I know a couple of priests who have said no. Either the one that didn't feel called, or two, they're like, no, I don't want that cross. <laughs> You know, um, so, um, but generally, if you say no once, you'll never get asked again. Has the Pope ever refused the suggestion? The person that was suggested has he? Oh yeah, he's got he, he's got sole authority. He could be like, no, I know this guy over here. And now, would he do that in the United States? Probably not, because he doesn't really know. But if he's from like he's our current Pope's from Argentina, he might see a name come across the desk for a diocese in Argentina and be like. Nope, I know that guy. I don't think he's fit. I'm going to choose someone else. So. Is there a difference between bishop and archbishop? Oh, good question. So there are several other titles in the church. Archbishop means he's in charge of a larger city, a larger diocese. Mm -hmm. So um, Archbishop Lucas, whose first name is George, George Lucas. <laughs> he's a Star um, Trek. Yeah. And so, uh, Archbishop Lucas oversees um, Grand Island and Lincoln. He doesn't have any authority here um, in the ordinary sense, but like, say, when Bishop Conley had, um, was sick, he stepped in and would come in and be administrator. So they basically just look to him for kind of guidance, and if there is anyone who is kind of uh, sick or has to be replaced, they can kind of step in. But important for me because Archbishop Lucas ordained me priest. So yeah. Oh, that's right. Was still gone. So eternally grateful for him. Yes. There yeah. have been several bishops, named bishops, priests from our diocese. Yeah. Two, and the founding pastor of St. Peter's is a bishop. Yeah. So the, the priest, he was a priest here, uh, Robert Vasha, as we call it, Bishop Vasha Hall. He was named uh, Bishop of Baker, Oregon. Um, because he did something pretty extraordinary, built a church, and then he was also the vicar general of the diocese, which is kind of like this second in command. So you'll also hear of auxiliary bishops. Auxiliary bishops kind of um, is kind of like an assistant to the bishop. They have the full authority of the sacraments to make other priests, but they don't have governing authority. Because remember... Um, uh, the threefold office of our Lord. He was priest, he was a prophet, and he was a king. Okay. So every priest is to be able to offer worship. So every priest and bishop do this. Prophet means you're a teacher. Basically, you teach and you proclaim the good news and the gospel. You lead Bible studies, teach RCIA. That's what we're doing right now, the prophetic role. Um, most bishops do this by their weekly letter, by their um, homilies or addresses. But a majority of bishops are in, they spend a majority of their time in governing. Okay, So you go your whole life and you're working with people and you're baptizing and you're doing. Most priests probably enjoy this or this more. To govern, is, it's a lot of headache and heartache. So... Where's the Monsignor level? Um, Monsignors? The, the, the Monsignors, so there's, going back to this, um, 
A Monsignor is a priest who has just been recognized for something that he's done good. Uh, Monsignor is not a rank in the church anymore, um, per se. Um, it became part of, and Pope Francis, one of the probably good things he did is to like, um, to weed priests out that were kind of climbers. We want to be recognized for a gift. And, you know, we all want to be recognized for things. And so the, the literal word Monsignor means my Lord. And so it was a title that was given, you know, in the French for a priest who did something very good or um, he's got an office in the chancery. So the Pope um, can give them that title. But it's usually their local bishop recommends them for the title Monsignor. And so, but it kind of creates some kind of jealousy or envy amongst other priests. So it's like, it's not necessary. To try to, let's try to simplify it. This is what the church is, these three hierarchies. So. Would that be kind of on the same level as sister to mother? Um, yeah, a, a little different. Sister to mother is, and we'll talk about religious orders. That's more of a community. Um, these are um, a high, actually hierarchy. So um, when you become a religious sister, it's not actually a sacrament. It's, it's a vow. Um, which is different than even your wedding vows or promises that priests take. But we will talk about religious orders and uh, go into the priesthood a little bit more. I was going to ask, what about the founders of orders like St. Dominic and St. Francis? If that's maybe. Yeah, um, th that's a great question. They are religious. Um, some are, were elevated to becoming a bishop, and most of them were not. So... They'd be considered like founding fathers of, so. So, we have three priests in this. Yeah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> is that pretty typical for most parishes, or is that depending on the population? Yeah, a lot of it's a lot of it's population, and a lot of it's need. Um, this parish is usually only has two, a pastor and an assistant. Um, and then um, because we have a lot of nursing homes in our area, there was a pastoral need for that. And it used to be taking care of a priest who was living outside of the parish. And they thought it's just better for priests to live together in a parish. So Father Dewar's main assignment was to take care of the nursing homes. So this, this is the first year we actually had three priests. But, but there are some priests in western Nebraska. They have a small little church. They might have 25 families in one church. And then they have a mission church of like 15 families. So, um, yeah, we have 1,400 families here. So, it's never dull. Can I ask a question about the deacons? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm back to my dad here. Uh -huh. He told me that, um, yeah, a deacon could be married, but if their wife died, they were bound to not marry any other priest. Is that true? That's correct, yep. Really? Okay. So, um, yeah, so it, what, it, what it is, it, remember what we just read in the gospel, you know, about the guy whose wife dies and he's got seven sons, or seven, she's had, his wife has seven husbands. And he says, people marry and remarry in this age, but not in the age to come. And so, uh, we'll talk a little bit about this in a minute, but why priests and sisters don't get married is because we want to live the foretaste of what it's like in the kingdom of heaven, because there is no marriage in heaven. And so if you're married, so you typically if you get married and if you feel God's calling you to become a deacon, you have to apply and the bishop accepts it. You go through training and formation and then the bishop ordains you. But it's the understanding that 
if your wife dies, you can't get remarried because you promised your, your life to the church. So, yeah. So what happens if a deacon gets married and then has kids and then his wife dies? Like, what? I know being a priest is very, like, yeah. so how does he take care of his kids? Yeah, and that's, that's a great question. Now, um, most dioceses will not allow you to become a deacon until your kids are actually out of the house. Because your, your primary responsibility is still your spouse, and then your second responsibility is your kids, and then it's the church. And it's really hard because, I mean, I was a missionary before I became a priest, and that's how I really discovered uh, the vocation of celibacy because every time I was um, working with college students, um, my heart was torn because I was dating this beautiful Catholic girl. I thought we were going to get married, but it, it was very hard because my heart was torn because I couldn't be with her and be out spreading the good news of the gospel to these guys. And so I discovered, like, my heart's made for just one. And so I gave her up and went to the priesthood. <laughs> so Cardinals? Yes, Cardinals. Um, from St. Louis? The, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, that's what... So, um, of the bishops, there are certain bishops that become archbishops because they're larger. And then... How many cardinals are there now? About 118 or something. So they select from the largest, not always the largest diocese, but uh, 118 um, cardinals. They usually are, um, they oversee a, uh, an office in Rome, whether it's the office of the sacraments or maybe it's the office of religious life or um, the divine worship. Yeah, and so they're usually a cardinal that oversees that. And then the second job is if the Pope dies, they get all together and they, um, they call this the conclave. So, clave is the Latin word for keys. Matthew 16. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So, con is with, with keys. So, they get all together and they pray and they fast for several days and then they vote um, who is going to be the next Pope. So, hey, uh, what about us Jamokes here, just in the pews that are not ordained? What are, how do we fall kind of in this view of the church? Yeah, so you're part of the church militant. You're on the front lines. And you're baptized. Yeah, lady, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we'll talk a little bit about this on the 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 gift of the role of the laity in in the church, and particularly. Um, you're called, as Jesus says, to be leaven in society, okay? There are people in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, in your families that only you can reach. And it's not really the role of the priest to go on knocking on every single door as much as I want to. It's really the role of the laity to bring people to know Jesus. Um, our job is to help train you. And so it's like you think of a general and the frontline troops. Um, okay, so someone may ask the question, well, maybe bishops were just kind of made up in the Middle Ages. That was, that was a question asked me once. Um, are they really the successors of the apostles? So the 11 apostles we see in Acts chapter 1. Hey, why do they replace Judas? Okay, They replaced Judas because... Yeah, you need 12, but how come we didn't just stop at 12? There's a reason why. 
They replaced him. In 2 Timothy 2.2, St. Paul says, What you've seen and heard from me, entrust to faithful men who can teach others as well. Okay? It's kind of a mouthful. What you've seen and heard from me, entrust to faithful men who can teach others as well. Or what we would like to say, 2 Timothy 2.2, is teach teachers how to teach. Okay? It's not merely enough to live the faith or to teach the faith. If you want the faith to go on generational after generational after generational, it's that you have to teach others how to teach the faith. Ephesians 2, um, St. Paul says, You are fellow citizens with the holy ones and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles. Okay? And then St. Ignatius of Antioch says that you follow the bishop. Do nothing in the church without the bishop, because wherever the bishop is, there is the church. And you may not even realize this, too. If a Catholic marries someone who's non-Catholic, you have to get permission from the bishop. And this goes back to Ignatius of Antioch. He expounds on this. He says, if anyone's to be married, present them before the bishop. Okay. Now the bishop can't see everyone in the diocese who's getting married. So the delegation is, if a Catholic's married another Catholic, I have the authority to marry them. But if it's a Catholic marrying a non-Catholic, it's really just kind of a simple form, letter on the back, get all the documents together, I take it to the bishop, the bishop looks it over, he stamps it, and he gives the blessing. Um, we, won't, uh, we won't have time to look at this, but there's actually a website, and you have that in your notes. You can actually see where Bishop Conley traces his lineage back to. <clears throat> Most bishops in the United States can trace their lineage back to which apostle, you think, or which two apostles. Yep, Peter and Paul. Because Peter and Paul were the ones that went to Rome. Okay? My best friend, he's from India. You don't know who they trace their apostle back to? Thomas. Thomas. That's right. And if you go to if you go to um, Egypt, it would be Matthew. Okay. You go to Armenia, which was the first Christian country. They they trace their lineage back to Bartholomew. Okay. Okay. The church is apostolic. We got Christ who chooses these 12. There's, that's what the cardinals were during Vatican II. Cardinals were, that's why we call the birds cardinals, because they wear the same thing. <laughs> um, so the bishops to the priests. Okay. Um, question, why do we have a pope? What's the word pope mean? You don't know Spanish? Yeah, what's the word papa mean in Spanish? Yeah, daddy. So they, the Italians call him papa. And that's where in English was translated to pope. Okay. Is that the reason why it's, you usually see it as lowercase as opposed to uppercase P? 
Uh, no, it's lowercase um, because it, there's no specific person behind it. If I put Pope Francis, our mm -hmm. current Pope, I would use an uppercase. Up. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay, so we already established that Jesus chose the 12 apostles, and then he tells Peter to be the leader among them. This is, as you walk into our church, it says, you are Peter or thou art Peter. Okay. Jesus takes the 12 apostles, and they've been together for three years. He's like, hey, let's go up to this place called Caesarea Philippi. They go on this camping trip. It's a few days hike to the northern parts where you can see the cedars of Lebanon. And he says, hey, who do people say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. You're a prophet. No, who do you say that I am? Well, Peter gets it right. You know, a pop quiz. Um, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is like, well done, Peter. Well, your mom and dad didn't reveal this to you or any flesh or blood, but my heavenly father did. So you are Peter. What's the name Peter mean? Stone, rock. You are the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There was a story about um, when Napoleon came to Rome, he was going to um, take over Rome. And Cardinal Savalli, the cardinal or secretary said at the time, goes out to meet him and says, Napoleon, you little man. <laughs> you can't take you cannot destroy the church because for thousands of years we've had bad bishops, priests who have tried to destroy the church from the inside, and if they could not succeed after a thousand and eighteen hundred years, then you cannot succeed from the exterior. Like, okay, good point. <laughs> So St. Peter is always mentioned first in the Bible when they list the apostles. He's always, the mo he's always at the most important events with Jesus. He takes his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. Okay? He speaks for the apostles. He's called the rock in which the church is built. He is given the keys to heaven. He's given power to bind and loose. He takes charge of the events of the early church. Okay? And it's providential that we have this class tonight because mm -hmm. today's feast day is the feast day of Pope Leo the Great. Pope Leo the Great saved Rome from being sacked by Attila the Hun, and he saved it from being burned down by the Vandals. Or not the Vandals, the... Uh... Yeah, I think it was the Vandals. But in 451, <clears throat> the Fifth Council... There's a debate. Who is Jesus? Someone says over here he's fully God, and over here they say he's fully man. There were two schools of thought. One was in Alexandria, Egypt, and one was in Antioch, which is in present-day um, Turkey. And one of them was emphasizing the humanity, and the other one was emphasizing his divinity. And they were kind of at a loggerheads, and they were basically and speaking different languages too. So there was a lot of confusion, and so they became... A lot of fighting and arguing over this, and bishops taking over bishops and priests being thrown in prison, and it created confusion in society. So the emperor's like, okay, we got to get all you people together. Let's call this council because when there's peace in society and there's peace in church, 
um, it's going to be better for us. So let's get together. And they come, come together at this council, and they still cannot come up with the right uh, way to phrase who Jesus is. And finally, Pope Leo, he writes this tome, and afterwards they all quiet down, and they're like, Peter has spoken. <coughs> so mind you, this is 400 years after Peter dies. Okay. So today we have Pope Francis, but before him, we got Peter, Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus Cornelius. So in the prayer that we said at Mass, we list off the first popes who were martyrs. Okay. So they, it's not all, all those names in there aren't all popes, but it's the only ones that were martyred. So the first pope not martyred was after the year when Christianity became legal. And that was in um, 313. Christianity became legal. Before that, it was illegal to be Christian. Hmm. Didn't know that. And so they were, they were being killed for the faith. And so it was allowed. So um, We also see that the other 11, they choose other... Um, disciples, and we hear of Paul taking along Barnabas with him, or Paul taking Timothy and Titus. Um, then people will ask, well, what about the church? Uh, you guys say that the, ch the Pope is infallible. What's that mean? Does that mean if uh, Pope Francis issues a statement that the Huskers are going to win this weekend, would that be an infallible statement? No, it'd just be a stupid statement. <laughs> what's, what's infallibility mean? Does it mean he's without sin? No, that's impeccable. Infallibility doesn't mean that the Pope is sinless, and it doesn't mean that everything he says is correct. You can disagree with some of the things that Pope Francis says and still be a good Catholic. You're like, ah, eh, I probably wouldn't have said that. Okay, we don't follow him blindly. There's two extremes, uh, and one of the extremes in the Middle Ages was called ultramontanism. It means over the mountains. So basically, everything the Pope said, you had to do exactly that. The other extreme is like, nah, the Pope is just no different than a bishop. The Pope is the one who unifies all the bishops together. And so when he speaks from his chair, the cathedra, every bishop has a chair, speaking authority, like Moses sat down to speak, okay? When he speaks on behalf of clarification of areas of faith and morals, okay? Does he have to hold the Croatian reminder? No. <laughs> no. He, he just had more flair, though. He, I guess I've never realized that he ever did that, too. He just has to, he just has to say some specific, there's some specific wording that yeah. we've, we firmly declare and believe and hold on yeah. um, Because when we do that, the cathedral and stuff, where you or whoever has done in the past of getting the bishop, the MC. Those things, you know, yeah. So I guess I never thought of that until now, because you have to have those things. He might. I don't know. That'll be your homework assignment. I'll have to check. Okay. okay. So Three-page paper, we'll come back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Make sure your footnotes are... Okay. MLA style. Um, so, in terms of the infallibility, is it correct that 
since the convocation of the expectantra, the Pope has never actually exercised it in terms of dogma? Um, not, no, because uh, the, in, because he did the Immaculate Conception, which would have been after the declaration of the infallibility of the Pope. And then he's also done, um, in 1954, the declaration that Mary was assumed into heaven as Pope Pius XII. It was something that the church always believed. And it's interesting that he made this declaration in 1954. What happened 10 years before that? World War II and the arms race. And so the, his declaration for saying that Mary assumed body and soul into heaven was to really point to the dignity of the human person. That one day, Jesus is going to take all of our bodies to be reunited with our souls. And so it was, it was really a, um, a calling back of the Christianity in Europe that were totally destroying each other for the last 50 years in World War I, World War II, and then the Cold War started. And so... Um, this declaration of the papal infallibility or Pope's infallible uh, really points to Isaiah 22. Um, David is the king, right? Remember David? Um, and he's going to go off to war. He's going to leave his kingdom. And what's he do? He appoints Eliakim. Here you go. Here are the keys. Whatever you have authority on earth, or whatever you have authority in my kingdom, I will recognize when I come back. Okay? So if I give Jack the keys to my 69 Plymouth Roadrunner and say, here you go, go ahead and take it out for prom or whatever. Can he take that and go left or right or spin the tires if he wants to? Yeah. I have given him the authority to drive my muscle car. But at the end of the day or the end of the prom... It's my car. I'm coming back for it. And so this is, this, the church is Jesus's. And he just gives the keys to Peter. And those keys keep getting passed on. He says, hey, at the end of time, I'm coming back to the church. Uh, so Peter has the power to bind and loose. This comes directly from the rabbinical language where it is primarily a means of having authority uh, to make doctrinal decisions and also to impose or to lift a penalty. But unlike the rabbis, Peter is given the authority of both heaven and earth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Um, this might be the last question we get here tonight. Um, St. Paul says that there's one mediator between God and man. Who is that? Jesus. And who was the mediator between God and man in the Old Testament? What's that? Noah's the high priest. Yeah, we got Noah. You got a bunch of people, right? We could just say he set up the Old Covenant with, you know, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. Okay. The chosen people. And they were supposed to be mediators for the rest of the world. Um, and then when Christ, 
Christ comes into the world. Jesus, he's the mediator. St. Paul says there's one mediator between man, and that is Jesus Christ. Does anyone here have a direct phone to, the, to God? Because if you do, we can make a lot of money and sell that. <laughs> right? I mean, wouldn't that be great if we could just talk directly? Um, I mean, we can in prayer, and we'll talk about prayer. Yeah. But does God, does God always speak on, on behalf to you, like everything that you... No. Yeah. And so, like, we need to have a mediator, right? So what makes Jesus the mediator? St. Paul, interestingly enough, says here in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ the man. It's in his humanity that he's able to communicate with us. You know, you can't be a mediator unless you can communicate. It's in the humanity of Jesus that he's able to be one with us. And so his humanity... Well, his personhood, who is it? It is the church, which is the mediator between God and man now. So the priest acts in the person of Christ. Um, it's not my gifts, it's not my talents. We'll talk more about this when we talk about ordination. But it's, the, it's actually the gift of the charism, the gift that God has given me um, of holy orders. Um, so every priest participates in that priesthood of Jesus. So it's an analogy. You, can't, you participate in the name of your family. It does not take away, your, does not take away from your family. Okay? Uh, the one priesthood of Christ is made to present through the ministerial priesthood without diminishing and the uniqueness of Christ. Priesthood. There is only one true priest. This is what St. Paul writes in his letter to the Hebrews. There's one sacrifice. There's one priesthood. And so every priest is participating in that ministry of Christ because we're one body. And Jesus commanded the apostles to go make disciples of all nations. Okay? He sent them out on behalf of him. Um, any questions on mediation or hierarchy? What is the role of the Holy Spirit then? Yeah, great question. So, the Holy Spirit has obviously uh, multiple roles. Um, where do we see the Holy Spirit first come? At creation, right? It hovers over the waters of creation. It's it's God's gift to the world in order to create to create the world. Um, God breathes, and so in in the Hebrew language, they refer to the Holy Spirit as the breath of God, and in other scripture texts, refers to it as the flame of God. You know, some some people say that the burning bush was the power of the Holy Spirit come down, it's a foreshadowing, but Really, um, where, does, where does the Holy Spirit come um, the first time after Christ? He says, he, he says, I must leave you so that way I can send the advocate, your helper. So he sends down the Holy Spirit. He conquers sin and death on the cross. He resurrects from the dead. And what's he do? He goes to the upper room and he breathed on the 12 apostles. 
The first time God breathes on man since creation. He says, we'll talk about this in the confession. He, says, he breathes on them and he says, whose, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, and whose sins you retain are retained. So he's giving them the authority on earth to forgive sins. Oh, wait. The Pharisee says, man can't forgive sins on earth. Only God can forgive sins. That's true. Jesus is God, so Jesus could forgive sins. But then the Holy Spirit's God, and the Holy Spirit comes to the men after the resurrection. He breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit. So the breath of the Holy Spirit um, is alive and active um, in all the church. And it's, it's beautiful when you go to um, ordination, right, or when the bishop consecrates um, the oils that are used for the sacraments. What's he do? He breathes into the oil. That, that symbolism. Now, um, so the, the Holy Spirit um, is alive and active and, and through the authority given to those 12 apostles, which are given to the priest, which then are given to laity, and it's all the Holy Spirit's present there. But here, here's the, the beautiful thing, and I, and I said this when we first walked into the church, too. Um, it's probably the same for those, those who here is married. You know, it's probably the same for you that are married. Um, before you actually lived with your spouse and really got to know them and love them, you might have like admired them from afar and kind of fell in love with them. There's something about them that attracted you to them. There's something probably that is about the church that is attracting you to the church today. And that could be, you know, something exterior. It could be something inter interior. It could be another spouse. It could be a family member that's attracting you to the church. But that attraction is the start. It's really when you come into spousal unity, and when you enter into the church, that you actually experience the love that God wants to give to each and every one of us. There's so much that we can do to study, and there's I've got a lifelong ability to study, uh, goal to study the faith, and I can't get it in my little nugget. Um, but but it, it really is once you enter into that relationship that it becomes um, opened up. And that's my hope and my prayer for all of us. You know, um, and I think I maybe have said this before to some of you, because uh, there was a time I left the church, and I left the church because I had a really good friend who wanted to introduce me to Jesus and asked if I had a personal relationship with Christ. I didn't know what that meant. Um, and so I'm, asking, I'm sitting there praying, Lord, do I have a personal relationship with you? I go to church on Sunday, occasionally in college, but I haven't killed anyone. I haven't robbed the bank. Um, do I have a relationship with you? And he said, no. You have something so much more. You have intimacy with me. But right now, you are an unfaithful spouse. Because I wasn't living the life I was called to live. And so that's the beautiful thing about the, the church. We can look at it from all the different doctrines, but the most beautiful thing is looking at it as a spousal union. Looking at it as a spousal union of Christ who wants to have intimacy with all of us. And that's the beauty of entering into it. Let's close with a prayer. In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit.
Lord, we praise you. We thank you. We know that you who are a loving Savior desire for our welfare and not for our woe. We ask you, Lord, to be with all those who are suffering tonight, whether it's physical, mental, spiritual. And we ask you, Lord, to send down your legions of angels to watch over all of us and to lead those who have recently died into your kingdom and so that one day we may see you face to face in your glory. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Almighty God bless you all, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.